So we have these candles. We've been burning them now for a couple of weeks. And they, they, they're just visual reminders of what we're trying to do in this season of preparation heading towards Christmas. We're not quite to Christmas yet, but we're preparing for Christmas. And so in Advent, we've been talking about the fact that Advent is a season where we remember the fact that God is a God who makes promises and is good to keep them. And then last week, we talked about the fact that God, though he will always keep those promises, he is not necessarily prone to operate on our timeline. And so a lot of times, it seems like we just have to wait on the Lord for whatever reason. And then the pink candle of joy is a time where we are going to remember that God is also a God who judges and makes judgments. And I'm glad that I don't have to preach this sermon. Instead, this is Drew's honor. But Advent is a season in which we remember that God does, in fact, judge. Which brings us to Isaiah 11, verse 10 verses. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ryan. Good morning. Hope you're doing well today. Uh, several years ago, my wife Amy and I were tucking our kids in for bed at night, kind of making the rounds to each one of them, uh, doing kind of the usual routine. We'd pray with them for a little bit, and then we'd sing a song over them, and, and then kind of tuck them in, kiss them goodnight and lay them down. But one of the things we kind of learned uh, over the years is that on those nights, if we're willing to kind of sit a little bit, if we're willing to be patient and not rush things, that sometimes some really good conversations with your kids can take place. Something about that time as they're laying down, that the the wheels are kind of turning and they're just kind of processing things. Sometimes they'll share things that you didn't expect or sometimes they'll ask questions that you didn't expect. And on this particular night, I was putting my oldest, Ella, down, who is five, six years old at the time. It's weird, I have to remember now she's in here now, so I have to be careful sometimes about the things I say. This one's okay. 
It'll be all right. Um, so she was like five or six years old at the time, and, and I'm putting her down, and I can see kind of the wheels turning in her head a little bit. And then as we wrap up, she just kind of turns to me with this question. She says, Dad, I said, yeah. She said, uh, when Jesus was on the earth, did he ever live in America? I said, well, only if you're Mormon. And she didn't get that. But <laughs> then I said, I said, no, actually, he didn't, uh, didn't live in America. Actually, and, and when I said that, she was actually pretty kind of surprised. You could see that was not the answer that she expected. Her eyes kind of got really big. He didn't. And I said, no, he, he, actually, lived, uh, he actually lived on the other side of the world. He lived in this land we call Israel over there. And she's like, huh. And I said, actually, he did not, uh, he didn't look like us, and he didn't speak English. He didn't speak our language. And this, you could see, really took Ella by surprise. She was really shocked by this, and she just said, what? I said, yeah, he did not speak English. He actually spoke this language called Aramaic over there, completely different than us. And, and she just sat there, and I could see her. She was kind of staring off into space, and she began to just shake her head, and she said, that just doesn't sound like him. And I've thought about that statement a lot. That just doesn't sound like him. I've thought about that statement a lot since then because I think what little five-year-old Ella was expressing in that moment was this thing that's actually true of a lot of us. And that is that I think, actually, not just a lot, I think all of us have this particular image of Jesus in our minds, whether this is a conscious thing or an unconscious thing, we have this picture of what Jesus is like. And I, I don't mean what he looked like physically. I mean like the kind of person he is, his character, his temperament, his, his personality, the things that he gets passionate about. All of us have some sort of image of Jesus in our minds, and those things don't always match up with reality with the real Jesus, with the Jesus of the Gospels. And sometimes when we encounter the actual Jesus, the Jesus in these Gospels, there will be times when we may not say these words, but something inside of us goes, that doesn't sound like the Jesus that I know. Uh, the Jesus I know, he wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have sounded so harsh when he spoke to the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7. Or, or maybe the Jesus I know, he wouldn't have been so lax around the tax collectors who are betraying their own countrymen so they can make a buck, and around the, the partiers and the drunkards. He wouldn't have been so lax around them. I mean, you know, it's good to reach out to people, but you, gotta, you have to be above reproach. Your, your, your reputation's got to be, you know, high up there, Jesus. And, or maybe we may think, you know, I don't think the Jesus I know wouldn't make such extreme demands on people. Things like, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to hate your father and your mother your family, your spouse, even your own life in order to come after me. That just sounds a little extreme for the Jesus that I know. I think it's just natural, actually, for all of us to, to form God and, there, and, and likewise his son Jesus into an image or a shape that kind of fits us something that makes us comfortable, something that fits our personality or our background or something that is the opposite, maybe, of the background that we grew up in. And, and that's why I think, actually, uh, probably the most popular version of Jesus is Christmas Jesus, is baby Jesus. 
There's a reason why people who want nothing to do with the real Jesus, people who would not identify themselves with Jesus or with the church or with Christianity in any way, shape, or form, there's a reason why those very people have no problem singing his praises, literally singing the praises of baby Jesus through Christmas carols every year. I think it's because baby Jesus is safer. I think it's because baby Jesus, well, You know, we don't know very much about him, so it's kind of easier to picture him like I want to. It's because baby Jesus isn't talking yet, so he's not saying things that make me uncomfortable. He's not saying things that are controversial, that that kind of push me a little bit. And so it's easier to kind of see him how I want to see him. And there are a lot of pictures of Jesus around this time of year, and some of them are not so biblical. The rosy red cheeks and the blonde curly hair. Or, or maybe the little halo over his head, or at least, you know, that little glowing aura coming from the manger in some of the paintings there, or, or at least maybe the, that he's passive and just completely quiet, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. There are a lot of pictures. Some of those pictures and some of those ideas and words that come to mind when we think of Jesus around this time are very biblical. We like to think of Jesus as the Prince of Peace around Christmas time. We like to think of him as Emmanuel. We like to think of him as the newborn king, and those are all good and right words. But can I give you a new one for this year at Christmas? Judge. That the little baby you see in the manger is not just cute, and he's not just the prince of peace, and he's not just Emmanuel, but he is the judge of all mankind of every person who has ever walked the face of the earth, living and dead, past, present, and future. And I know that it sounds probably right now like I'm trying to be edgy, like trying to come up with kind of a new, cool way to preach Christmas a little bit, but I'm telling you actually this is a biblical concept, and it's a Christmas text concept. So it's not actually a new idea, it's a very old one. As a matter of fact, the very text that we just read from today, Isaiah 11, you've probably heard of, maybe you even practice with your family, the Advent tradition known as the Jesse tree. We have some Jesse tree ornaments out in the lobby, actually, hanging on the back side over there. The idea of the Jesse tree is every day in December, you walk in the Old Testament from the beginning to end, you walk through the lineage of Jesus up until the point of his birth, starting back in creation and through Abraham, through the line of David and all of these things. That tradition comes from the text we just heard read to us, Isaiah 11. That's where it comes from. But this text, Isaiah 11, if you were paying attention, the major theme of this text is judgment, is the judgment of this person who will come from this line. It's not really a theme, as I said, we think about much at Christmas. We don't sing a lot of Christmas carols about sweet baby Jesus judging the whole world. But it's not just at Christmas, I think, that we like to ignore judgment. No, we we kind of prefer to put judgment to the side all year year long. We would prefer to not think about those things. Why is that? Why is it that we prefer to not think about judgment, that we don't like that idea very much? One of the worst things you could be labeled today in our culture, in our society, is to be judgmental, to be judgy. That idea, it just, it smacks of self-righteousness, of smugness, of, of just being mean, honestly. The worst kind of Christian is a judgmental Christian. Nobody wants to be a judgmental Christian. There are some who might say that the worst kind of God 
is a judgmental God. There's some who go so far to say that any references you see to God and his judgment in here, that's, that's not the real God. That's, that's just the way that an ancient people, kind of in, in their old, archaic ways of understanding things, that's how they kind of pictured him, their interpretation. But the real God isn't like that. He's a God of love. Of course, I think most of us in here know that that's not true. But still, even those of us who believe that there is a God of judgment in here at times, uh, we kind of prefer to push that one to the back burner, to not think so much about those things. Why is that? I think, uh, there's probably a number of reasons, but I think maybe the main reason that we don't like judgment, whether it's in people or in God, is that when someone is judging me, when there is judgment, it implies that someone has authority over me. That this person who is judging has the right to call me good or bad. And therefore also to deem whether, like what kind of consequences or what kind of fate I should have because of my goodness or badness. And I don't like that. I don't like when someone has that kind of authority or is at least claiming that kind of authority over me. Side note, this has nothing to do with my sermon, but I think it's worth saying. A lot of times we take this word judge and we kind of throw it on everything. And I think we tend to confuse sometimes things like confrontation with judgment. I don't know if that has to work that way. My kids don't have any authority over me, but they can still point out sin in my life. They can still confront me on things. And what we like to do is we like to kind of push those two things together as one and say, how dare you judge me anytime someone points out truth about something in our life. I don't know if those are necessarily the same thing. Okay, tangent over. Back to the sermon. One of the things that we hate most about judgment is it implies authority over me. And so that leads basically to one of two responses, either anger or fear or some combination of the two. When I feel like the person who's judging me doesn't have the right to do that, or when I feel like they're judging me wrongly, when they don't understand, when they're being unfair, or when maybe they're no better than me, when they have no moral high ground on me, who are you to judge me? I get angry. That is my primary response. When I feel like the person may actually have authority over me, Picture a judge in a court of law who can rule on what kind of punishment or consequences I may face, then I get fearful. Fearful that they might get the ruling wrong. Or fearful that they might dole out more punishment than I deserve, or maybe even worse, that they might give me exactly what I deserve. And so many, when they think about the judgment of God, these are the emotions that are evoked from them, fear and anger. And so we prefer to just kind of set it aside, not think about that so much. The Israelites, the Israelites, though, they, they didn't have any problem thinking about judgment. They thought about it often, actually. The idea of judging comes up around 300 times in the Old Testament. And I know what you might be thinking, well, yeah, that's the Old Testament. God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament. He's always judging people in the Old Testament. No, that's not why. As a matter of fact, many of the references to judgment in the Old Testament have nothing to do with God. Many of them are actually about people judging other people, people judging between right and wrong. And yes, there are plenty of references to God in there, but the reason that the Old Testament talks about judgment so much is because in the ancient world, and if we're honest, in most of the world throughout history, justice is such a rare commodity. That in that world, and in much of the world even today, 
that those with power or money or influence are able to do as they please, and those without, the weak and the poor and the defenseless, they just have to live with it. That's just how life works. And so judgment was a really huge concept for the Israelites, and justice was a really huge concept. In a world full of injustice, in a world where might makes right, God's people were called to be something different, to be a different kind of people where righteousness and integrity and justice reigned and people were cared for, and judgment became a really important part of what it meant to rule God's people. As a matter of fact, before Israel had kings, all of their rulers were called what? Judges. We've got a whole book about it. And even when the kings began to rule and reign over Israel, that paradigm of judgment still reigns a lot in their way of thinking about like what a king actually does. There's this famous passage where God comes to Solomon as he first becomes king, and, he, and God asks him, what do you want me to do for you as you rule over my people? Solomon asks not for riches, not for power. Instead, he asks for wisdom to rule over God's people. But listen to the way he frames this up. Listen to the way he describes what it means to rule God's people. He says, give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. It was a huge part of what it meant to rule over God's people was right judgment. And it was a huge part. It was critical to the way the Israelites saw their relationship with God. When they thought of God and his judgment, they didn't think like we do, which is strictly in terms of punishment and wrath. That's that's not the way they thought. That was there. Of course that was there. But when they thought of God's judgment, they thought of God upholding justice and righteousness. They thought of God coming and making everything right, and they longed for that. And they prayed for that and they desired that. Here's one of the songs that they would sing about God and his judgment. It comes from Psalm chapter 7. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end and establish the righteous. The one who examines the thoughts and emotions is a righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath every day. This is just one example. If you read through the Psalms, you'll see this idea, this theme, this prayer for God to come and judge. You'll see it come up over and over and over again, calling for God to punish the wicked, calling for God to vindicate the righteous and to protect the innocent and the oppressed. They wanted God to come and bring justice to the world. There's a problem, and that's that God's people themselves, the Israelites themselves, often fell on the wrong side of this conversation. There was often a lack of justice within the nation of Israel itself. Justin mentioned how last week God's people were called to wait on him and wait on his salvation, but they didn't always wait well. Often their waiting turned to impatience, and their impatience turned towards hard-heartedness. And we see this pattern time and time again, that as people grow further and further away from the Lord, that they also grow further and further from integrity and justice and compassion and loving kindness towards other people. 
And so the prophets like Isaiah would call out to the people and call them out on this concept, on this idea over and over again. You'll see this in Isaiah like chapter 5, verse 7. Here's what Isaiah says. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah the plant he delighted in. He expected, that is God, God expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. Later on in the chapter, Isaiah begins to warn against these people who've made right wrong and wrong right. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to you. Isaiah says, when you turn ethics on its head, when you turn righteousness on its head and you call right things wrong and wrong things right, and Isaiah would say to them, this is the promise I make to you, that if you will not make things right, God will come and make things right. And so he does. Just a couple chapters after this, in chapters 8 and 9, God's judgment is prophesied to come through the nation of Assyria. Assyria will come from the north and they, this mighty empire will come and destroy the people of Israel because of their rebellion, because of the way they've chosen. It's pictured in those chapters as an axe that God will wield to cut down the forest of Israel. And then actually, as you get to the end of chapter 10, you see that that axe gets turned on Assyria itself. And the very nation that came to punish Israel will get punished by God for their arrogance and their pride and for their own violence and rebellion. And so the picture you have at the end of chapter 10 is basically this world laid bare, this forest full of cut down trees, nothing but stumps as far as the eye can see. But then... In the midst of that wasteland, life springs forth. The promise of Advent springs forth. This is the words we read in Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. In, a wor- in the midst of a world cut down, a shoot springs up, but not just any shoot. It will be one from the stump, it says, of Jesse. And the fruit that this shoot or the fruit that this branch will end up bearing, Ray Ortland says, will be a whole new world. You probably know, of course, that Jesse is the father of King David in the Old Testament. And so this stump, the the stump of Jesse is the Davidic line of kings that has been cut down because of its rebellion against God. But Isaiah says, out of this line, even though it seems to be dead and gone, something new is going to come out. Someone new is going to come out of it. And it's interesting that Isaiah uses the name Jesse here and not David. You see, all through uh, the book of the kings, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, no king is ever referenced in connection to Jesse. Every time they're referenced, that's in connection to David, at least those in the Davidic line. They'll say things like, this specific king walked in the ways of his father David. That king did not walk in the ways of his father David. No one is ever mentioned in reference to Jesse except for one, and that is David himself, who is known as the son of Jesse. And so what scholars think is happening here is this description, to connect this person to Jesse, he's saying that a new David is coming. 
the kind of king that you look back on and long for, the, the righteous king who, who did things right, who was faithful to God and who led God's people well, that kind of king is coming again. Only he's not going to be just like David. He's going to be better than David. Because when we got to the end of our text in verse 10, it calls this person not just a shoot from the line of Jesse, it calls him the root of Jesse. That is, he doesn't just come from the line of David. He is the origins of the line of David. The line of David comes from him. This is going to be someone new, someone unlike any other king we've seen before. He says in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. So this king will be different from every other ruler because he will operate not in human wisdom, but in the power and wisdom and knowledge of the Spirit of God. And what will he do with this power? What will he do with this wisdom and knowledge? He will judge. Verse 3, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The Messiah... This ruler will judge, but because he does so by the Spirit of God, you can be confident, Isaiah says, that he will never get it wrong. He will not be fooled by appearances. He will not be deceived by hearsay. He will not be influenced by politics or money. He will always do the right thing. He will always make the right judgment. And yes, his judgment will include punishment for the wicked, as it should but it will also include protection of the innocent, defending the poor, protecting the powerless. And can I tell you that it's not just the Israelites who need a judge like this. That the world did not cease to be unjust after Isaiah's day. No, the world we live in today is still broken, still full of injustice and unrighteousness. History has demonstrated this time and time again. Even recent history, the last few hundred years, whether that be the 10 million Africans forcibly transported by the British slave trade several hundred years ago, or whether that be the Jewish Holocaust of the 1940s, or the Rwandan genocide of the 1990s, or the 1 million children that are trafficked into the global sex trade every year. We still live in an unfair, in a wicked, in an unjust, broken world, a world where the weak and defenseless are still preyed upon by those who are stronger, where kids are often abused and neglected by the very people who are supposed to nurture and protect them. We live in a world where the powerful, where men like Harvey Weinstein can go decades doing whatever he wants without facing any consequences for it, if he ever faces consequences at all. We live in a world where tragic accidents and natural disasters and random diseases take loved ones far too soon. We live in a broken, unfair world that needs a judge, someone who will come and make things right again. And the promise of Advent is that that judge has come and that he will come again. 
That he has already begun the process of making the world right again. That he has already begun by establishing these little pockets of righteousness and, and truth and love. These pockets that he called the kingdom of God. Where God is rightly seen and worshipped and obeyed. And where his image bearers are loved and treated with mercy and compassion and loving kindness. And at times, as you look around and watch the news and as you hear the things that are going on in this world, it might not seem like the kingdom is doing very much here. That's okay. He said it would look like that, actually. He said that his kingdom would be like a mustard seed, small and seemingly insignificant, but eventually it's going to grow into something big, something unstoppable. And the promise is that when he returns, he will bring this kingdom to its ultimate culmination and he will send, set up a brand new reality here on this earth. This is how Isaiah describes it in verses 6 through 10. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. What Isaiah is describing here in figurative terms is a world made right. A world where the strong no longer prey on the weak. A world ruled by a righteous, faithful, all-wise judge who never gets it wrong. He's describing a world where the innocent are protected and vindicated, where the weak aren't taken advantage of, where senseless tragedy and wasting disease no longer prevail, where death does not have the last say. That's how Isaiah describes it. John describes it another way. In the very last book of our Bibles, Revelation chapter 21, this is what John explains that he sees as he looks out at this new heaven and new earth that Jesus has come to bring. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, John says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. This, brothers and sisters, is the world that we long for. This is the world that Jesus is bringing. This is the world he is coming to make a reality. But until that day comes, we wait. We wait with hope. We wait with anticipation for the root of Jesse, for the righteous judge to come again. We also wait with singing. So let's do that now.